Hey everyone, welcome back to Journal Storytellers. I'm your host, Chris Huber. Today on the podcast, we'll have opinion page editor Pat Butler and enterprise reporter Seth Tupper. Tupper's going to talk about his story about a secret nuclear accident near Vail 53 years ago. Stay tuned. Okay, everyone. Uh, welcome back to the podcast. With me today, I have uh, Pat Butler. Pat is our editorial page editor here at the Rapid City Journal, and you've been here for how many years? Uh, seven years now. Seven years. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast, Pat. Thanks, Chris. All right. First, I think for our listeners, I guess, if you just want to tell me a little bit about your job and, and uh, what you do on a daily basis. Sure. You know, well, first of all, I'd like to say that the I look at the editorial page as like the conscience of the newspaper. You know, reporters and photographers, they gather news. Editors work to improve the stories and write headlines. And the editorial page editor gets to sit in a nice comfortable chair with a steaming cup of coffee next to him and pontificate the great issues of the day. Hold it. That was 20 years ago. <laughs> now, like everybody else in the newsroom, the uh, editorial page editor is really busy. Um, but my primary responsibility in the newsroom is is working on the opinion page, and I love doing it because it gives me a chance to look at the issues more closely with my colleagues in the newsroom as well as with people in the community, and it gives us a chance to talk about those issues and then present them to the public in ways that we hope um, encourage them to get more involved in the process of uh, local government and what's going on uh, in their lives. Yeah, hopefully you have a little bit of time to pontificate also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. I just don't have the easy chair. Right. And my coffee gets cold. That's true. Okay, so I guess um, tell me a little bit about how our editorial board is structured. I'm one of the members, but uh, just let our uh, listeners know about the structure of the editorial board, how often we meet, and kind of what we discuss in those meetings. Sure. Uh, first of all, uh, in addition to Chris, our editorial board consists of our publisher, Eugene Jackson, our uh, digital content manager, Candy Den Oden, our uh, salesperson, Brandis Knudsen, and myself, Pat Butler. We meet once a week on Wednesdays. Typically what I do is I comb through the paper every day looking at issues of primarily local interest. I will pick three or four every week. And on Tuesdays, I email the stories to the other members of the editorial board, and we meet on Wednesdays, typically for, for 30 to 60 minutes. Um, hopefully, everyone's read the stories and gave them some thought before the edit board meeting, and then we just kind of open the floor up. You know, we, we want to hear from everybody. We, it's, it's an unfiltered, unplugged sort of event. Uh, we, wanna, we, want, we have pretty good diversity on our board, you know, we, although four of us are South Dakotans. The one, the one exception would be Eugene Jackson, our publisher. We're different ages. We have different backgrounds. And we all are really familiar with uh, Rapid City uh, as well as South Dakota. So we just want to let it fly. That's mm -hmm. really the goal, you know, is yeah. to get all these different ideas. And before I can really write the editorial, we do need to come to consensus. And, and that's a challenge. So yeah. uh, typically I'll get my point of view out there early, hopefully. And then I let the other folks in at board talk it out. And I take notes. And we reach consensus, consensus eventually. And uh, that's me asking at the, at the end of the edit board meeting, are we okay with this? Do we agree with this? And then if we say we're all okay, then it's my job to turn around and take all those thoughts and ideas and turn those into probably a 
600 to 800 word piece at the max. Um, this week, this Sunday, we're going to be writing about uh, body cams for police officers, for example. Yeah. Um, there was a pretty good discussion about that. You know, uh, body cams have proven to be very valuable to law enforcement in this country, but a lot of folks also think body cams hold police officers more accountable. So uh, a, a big part of our discussion was how much access should the general public have to uh, body cam mm -hmm. video. Right now, the story we had in last Sunday's uh, Rapid City Journal by Samuel Blackstone talked about the fact that it's, a lot of that stuff's not going to be available to the public. And that bothered some folks on the editorial board. You know, we feel like, or they felt like, if the taxpayers are paying for it, why should the police or law enforcement have all the say on who's going to see it and when? But nonetheless, uh, we, we pointed out in our discussion that uh, attorneys will have access to this information that their clients are charged in a criminal proceeding. They're going to be able to look at it if someone wants to sue the police department or file a complaint against the police department in a civil proceeding, they might have access to it. When our reporter is covering a trial, and currently that's Tiffany Tans, our court reporter, she might be able to see it in the court right. proceeding. So it's not going to be completely locked away and not accessible by the public. We also thought that it's still a good idea, even if we can't see it as much as we'd like to. And, of course, as employees of a newspaper, we would like to see it a lot. Yeah, of you course. Know? We think people would be interested. But we also respect what law enforcement has to do. We also respect the rights of the accused. Mm -hmm. And while we're anxious to see it, um, we're willing to wait. Uh, in the meantime, though, we think it's a great tool for the police to have. We do think we're going to get our opportunities to see some of that video. Mm -hmm. And as time goes on, things could change as far as access by the public. And we might be suggesting some things that could change in our editorial, which is scheduled to run on Sunday, November 5th. Yeah, so it seems like it's, you know, as far as the body cam issue, it's a good first step. We wish it would go a little bit further. And uh, readers, uh, this is coming out on Monday, but uh, go back on rabbitcityjournal.com and definitely read that editorial about our body cams. I think it's it'll be a good uh, primer for you and uh, just kind of a good uh, look at, um, you know, really, I think, a, an objective look at the issue um, from a South Dakota standpoint. So, Pat, um, you know, before we go, I just want to talk a little bit about how you distill down those thoughts and how do you get them onto paper from that hour meeting that we have at the editorial board. It seems like to me that would be a very difficult task, but you seem to do it uh, flawlessly every week, uh, twice a week. So um, how do you, how do you, what do you, when you first start writing an editorial, what's what's the first step, and then how do you how do you see it to the end? Uh, when I write an editorial, the, really the first steps are to go through my notes and to take out of out of my notes the things that really jumped out at me at our mm -hmm. at a board discussions. Probably yeah. most of my comments, right? <laughs> <laughs> right after the publishers. <laughs> yeah, good good call. <laughs> um, so a list, a list. Here's what people are saying pro. Here's what people are saying con. Here's what jumped out at me, you know, in our discussions. Like like a reporter, very much like a reporter. You know, what stands out in my mind? What what do I think is fairly represents what we all discussed? After I get my bullet points uh, for the editorial, the next most difficult thing, or the most difficult thing, I will say, is uh, is the first two paragraphs. Like what any writer faces when they yeah. when they do a project is. How do you hook the reader right away? You know, do you want to tell them in the first graph, here's what we think? Or do you want to kind of 
lead them down a path to the end of the editorial and tell them not what you think, but what you believe. Yeah. You know, and, and the entire point of writing editorial for me at least is, I mean, I do want to move people. You know, I want to... Right. I want them to th at least think about what we're writing. I, I want to uh, maybe encourage them to get more involved with government. We all know, and, and of course a lot of our editorials revolve around what government does. It's a key part of the newspaper's mission to be a watchdog. The editorial page, I feel like, plays a really important role in that. So we want to we we evoke emotion. We want people to think about what we're saying. They, and you don't have to agree with this either. I, some folks will get really upset if, if they disagree with our editorial. I want to say right now, I don't care if you disagree with the editorial. Uh, and I love it when people write letters to the editor uh, challenging what we did. Because we'll take those letters. We'll take those people who disagree with us, those thoughts. And that's part of the, part of the process. Because when you're writing editorials, you're doing all year, all the time. And you want to be in tune with the readers. And that doesn't mean we have to agree with the readers or they have to agree with us. But it's really trying to find that, that spot where we can all think about things and talk about things and not feel threatened by taking a position and not feel threatened if it's, if you feel like you're not seeing it the same way as we do or I, or we don't see it the same way as you do. This week we took on the, the issue also of sexual harassment, which was our editorial in Thursday's paper. It's a national and a local issue. And we talked a long time about what's the right way to do that. And I would really encourage people to look at that editorial and give me your feedback on what you think about the journal's position on, on sexual harassment in America. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. And uh, that the opinion page really needs to be a place where all views um, can be heard. And I think you do a great job on that. Uh, so thanks for, for joining us on the podcast today. And uh, be sure to check out uh, Rapid City Journal's opinion page every day. Uh, we'll have local editorials on Thursdays and Sundays. And we also have a good, bad, and ugly that runs on Tuesdays. And those, those are written by Pat. So uh, thanks for, having, for uh, coming on the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Hey everyone, I wanted to remind you to subscribe to Journal Storytellers on iTunes. It's really simple. All you have to do is go to iTunes, search for Rapid City Journal, and Journal Storytellers will pop up. Uh, click subscribe and the podcast will be sent to your iPhone every Monday. Uh, other podcasts that you should subscribe to also, brought to you by the Rapid City Journal, include Mount Podmore, a political podcast brought to you by Seth Tupper, and we'll soon be launching a sports podcast brought to you by our sports department. Now back to the podcast. All right, Seth, welcome back to the podcast. It's good to have you on again. Thanks. Yeah, so today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, your story that was in uh, last Sunday's edition, uh, where you revealed a 53-year-old uh, nuclear missile accident uh, near Vail. Um, so I guess for our readers, could you just tell us a little bit, uh, remind us what that story was? Yeah, so uh, basically in 1964, a, uh, uh, unbeknownst to pretty much everybody outside the Air Force, um, two young airmen, uh, communications repairmen, were sent from Ellsworth to the Lima II silo near Vail, which was one of uh, 150 missile silos throughout uh, the western part of South Dakota at that time. And they were supposed to fix a malfunctioning security system down in the silo um, alongside the missile. And they got down there, and one of the airmen was pulling out a fuse as part of their check on the security system. He didn't have a fuse puller, which was the uh, appropriate tool to use so he used a screwdriver and the screwdriver made contact with both the fuse and the fuse's grounded metal holder and a short circuit resulted 
short circuit zapped some faulty wiring in uh, retro rockets under the cone of the missile, and there was an explosion that blew the top of the missile uh, off and, and off to the side, and it fell down uh, to the bottom of the 80-foot deep silo, uh, thermonuclear warhead. Um, and so, obviously, there was some concern about yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> sounds a little scary. I don't know. A nuclear yeah. warhead at the bottom of a missile doesn't yeah. sound like the ideal place for it to be. No, not <laughs> okay. at all. So, mm. how, did you, how did you even go about getting this story? Yeah. So, uh, nine years ago, um, when I was living in Mitchell and working at the newspaper there, I was doing some freelance work on the side um, for this website called SouthDakota.com, which sounds like it's the state uh, tourism website. It's not. It was it's made to look that way, but it's run by a private company, and they hired people to write for them. And I wrote a, a travel piece on the um, Minuteman Missile National Historic Site, which was uh, j- had just opened around that time. And so that story's still out there on the internet. And um, funny enough, uh, I was a, a like an administrator on this site to to post my stories to this website. And they've never removed me, even though I haven't worked for them. <laughs> like, maybe they will now. <laughs> but so when anybody makes a comment on any of my old stories that are sitting on there on that site, it comes to me by email. And so I got an email in this past this August um, from a guy in Cibolo, Texas, Robert Hicks, who had read the story about the Minuteman missile site and said, "Why doesn't anybody seem to know about this accident that happened uh, near Vail in this missile silo in 1964?" because there's been a lot of reporting about some other accidents in recent times. Mm-hmm. And he said uh, he's just surprised that this one never got any publicity, and mm-hmm. he should know uh, a little bit about it because he got a medal for it, he said. And uh, uh, so I emailed him back and asked him if he'd be willing to talk about it. He said yes. We did a phone interview, and that uh, led to me asking him on a whim if he would be willing to come up here from Texas mm-hmm. uh, to visit the old silo site, which has since been imploded and, and covered over. And to also visit the Minuteman Missile National Historic Site, which he never had. And so uh, he did. In late September, he came up and we um, drove up to the Vail area and had a look around at the old silo site and went to the Minuteman Missile National Historic Site, too. Okay. So, so you also made a FOIA request uh, yeah. for, to get these documents. Tell, tell our uh, listeners a little bit about the FOIA process <laughs> and then uh, how this one worked out or didn't well, work out in this case. Uh, it's called the Freedom of Information Act. I don't recall the year it was enacted, but the, supposedly it's, it's a federal law that's supposed to open up you know, records to, to people mm-hmm. that want to request them and, and gives a process. And it, in some ways it, it, it does. It gives you, a, at least you have a formal process to request records, but um, every government office now has like a, a people that are in charge of, of uh, handling the FOIA process, and in a way, they've kind of become gatekeepers. So I haven't had very good luck with FOIAs through the years, but this one I thought, okay, it's been 53 years, you'd think that maybe they'd be re- be able to release something by now. And so I did a FOIA to the Air Force, put as much info as I could in there, what I was looking for. It got forwarded to the Air Force Safety Center in New Mexico, okay. and surprisingly, within a couple of weeks, they called. Uh, contacted me back and said you know this is we're reviewing this and we think we can get you something and but they said they'd get me an executive summary and so I thought okay that doesn't sound very good um but I waited and waited well uh as I was waiting for the FOIA to come through Bob Bob Hicks came up here from Texas we had our trip to the silo site and to the historic site and uh at the historic site he met a guy named Paul Hanshu who is also a former missile maintainer and they hit it off, and Paul Hanshu invited Bob to join a Facebook group for former um, missile workers uh, okay. from, from Ellsworth, missile alumni, basically. 
So Bob did that, and, and when he joined that group, another member of that group is a guy named David Stumpf from uh, Arizona who's working on a book about Minuteman missiles. Lo and behold, this David Stumpf had foia the same accident a couple of years ago because he had stumbled across a brief reference to it somewhere in his research. Yeah. And he got 65 pages of uh, redacted <laughs> material about it. He sent it to Bob. Bob sent it to me. I just sat on that and waited for my FOIA to come through. And then when my FOIA came through, they only gave me two paragraphs, basically. <laughs> what was their explanation and to so that? I called, so then I called the Air Force Safety Center and just said, hey, uh, just to let you know, I got, I got you know, the results of my FOIA, two paragraphs. And I just want you to know another guy FOIA'd this two years ago and got 65 pages. What's the deal? And their response at first was, no, no, no. I, I, I was talking to a guy at the Air Force Safety Center. He said, no. I would remember that. That didn't happen. I said, well, I hate to tell you, but I'm holding the, the, the FOIA cover letter right here that you sent to this guy. And the <laughs> With the, the guy's name on yeah, it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, so he said, well, give me, the, give me the FOIA request number. And so I did, and then that triggered his memory. And, yeah. oh, yeah, we did. And you, I guess you should have gotten the same 65 pages. And so, okay. And so then he, we also, um, you know, I, he took a look at what I had and said, yeah, that's legit. And we, we did give that, so... So that's how I ended up with 65 yeah. pages of uh, – that was the Air Force accident report that was filed uh, like 10 days after the accident. Okay. And, and it was like a blow-by-blow, minute-by-minute account of what had happened and what was to blame and all this stuff. Yeah. A lot of it was redacted. Uh, yeah. A lot of names were redacted. A lot of stuff I don't know what it was was, was redacted, but there was enough there that it was really yeah. – added there, a lot to Bob's account of it. Yeah, and really cemented some of those key details also, right? right? Yeah. Okay. So I guess that just speaks to kind of the arbitrary nature of the FOIA process. You don't really oh, yeah. know what you're getting, and you don't really know what's out there. Yeah, and it's you know it's really weighted toward you know this guy David Stumpf who had FOIA'd this. He has written a, a previous book about I think it was the Atlas missile program, and he's one of these guys that is, has sent I don't know probably hundreds, maybe even thousands of FOIA requests in. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this FOIA office knows that guy, and they know he's not going to go away, and then he knows they know he's just going to keep bugging him until he gets what he wants. And I think they saw me as just some guy way off in some South Dakota. Some guy in South Dakota. We'll, Dakota. Just, we'll just send this to him, and he'll be satisfied and whatever. And so that's one of the weaknesses in the FOIA system that, you know, yeah. you're dealing with people in faraway places who may have a high level of commitment to to producing the records you want or they may not care or they may be somewhere in between and and you're totally at their mercy Um, so that's interesting well let's go back to uh kind of the hero of the story bob hicks um the the thing that struck me most about bob was how unflappable he was in the face of this you know there's a nuclear warhead at the bottom of a silo and he's not really worried about that. Yeah. He's got to go save a, save a Minuteman missile. Um, and But he seems so matter-of-fact about the whole thing. Yeah. Why do you think that was? Well, as I told you, yeah, it was really disappointing kind of to <laughs> interview him and say, you must have been really scared. No, not really. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think he was chosen as were uh, – he was really in the early days of the missile program. I mean, they just broke ground to, to – uh, put the holes in the ground out, out here in western South Dakota in 62, and he was out here in 64. So he's one of the first people that were part of the Missile Corps to take care of the missiles. And I think the people like him were chosen because he said he went through a battery of tests, when, you know, mm-hmm. and, and when he joined the Air Force. And, you know, he was intelligent. He was um, even-keeled. He was common sense. He was a farm kid who knew how to fix things and problem-solve. 
And uh, I think that's why he and so many others uh, like him were chosen uh, for, to work in the missile fields because they were just cool, calm, and collected. And he was. He, he went down there. Uh, he went to the silo site. Um, he said he wasn't worried about the thermonuclear warhead that had fallen to the bottom of the silo. Staggering. <laughs> right. But he said his training had taught him that a number of things had to happen for that to actually detonate, and none of that had happened. Um, um, you know, it hadn't received launch codes. It, it hadn't rocketed into space and experienced G-forces that it needed to experience and things like that. So he wasn't worried about the warhead, but he was worried about the missile, as he said, that if the, if the warhead would have... Um, you know, punctured the missile as it fell down the silo. The missile itself could have exploded, um, and then there'd have been a problem. But so he, even though he wasn't worried about the warhead, there was danger involved. Um, he mm -hmm. had to go down, and he had to uh, insert kind of a long metal rod in between three fuel stages of the missile to what they called safe the missile, uh, mm -hmm. um, make it uh, unable to launch, and then he helped to. Um, Bring the bring the nuclear warhead up in a cargo net with a crane between the missile and the silo, and making sure not to hit the missile and cause it to explode on the way up or whatever. Yeah, that <laughs> so, would be bad. <laughs> and then he got a medal for all of this. He got an Air Force yeah. Commendation Medal for acts of courage for um, going down there to save the missile when when nobody was real sure, you know, um, what the danger was, and then for also um, helping pull the missile out of the hole and drive it back to Ellsworth um, in a truck. So the, yeah. pull the warhead, I should say. Yeah, guys like him were definitely needed that during that time, and I'm sure still are needed today. Um, mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Seth, for uncovering this story. Um, it, it stayed secret for 53 years, as we said at the start. But uh, you know, thanks to Bob Hicks reaching out mm -hmm. to you, and then you working on it for a couple months, um, we were able to tell this story, and you guys really liked it online. Uh, if you haven't read it yet, be sure to just search RapidCityJournal.com for Seth's name, or for Vale, or for missile or accident. Um, it should come up there and uh, read the whole story. And thanks for joining us on the podcast. You're welcome.